As you recall, last week we, we finished uh, that story that we all know about David and Goliath, and we picked back up, and there are cues in the text that this is immediately following. Um, as soon, the text starts out in 1 Samuel 18, 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul. So uh, what that's reminding us of is when after David defeats Goliath, Saul leans over to Abner, who was the commander of the, the armies of Israel, and says, who is that guy? Who's his dad? And so immediately following that, uh, <clears throat> Saul is talking to David. Saul says to, uh, to, to David, um, uh, Saul, Saul and, is, is trying to get everything together, and Jonathan, David's son, uh, Saul's son, is standing there. And the text tells us that Jonathan is standing there, and his soul is knit to David. In fact, throughout this whole chapter, we'll see that men are drawn to David. And, and I, can, I can see why. If you think about it, here's David, a weak young man, a young man who's willing to stand up in front of the champion of the Philistines and say, you will not talk about God's people that way so that you know that there's a God and he reigns. You will die. David had guts. He was a man and he was dependent on God. Now those two things seem in our culture to be contradictory. We act like that to be a man's man, you got to be foul-mouthed, you got you got to sin all over the place, you get you got to you got to talk down to women, you got to be a jerk all the time, and that's what's the definition of being a man. But here we see in David somebody that is fully dependent on God. We saw that the reason why David was able ultimately to overcome the Philistine was because he realized that Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. God is the champion of the Israelites, and so with God we can overcome. That's why he was victorious, not because David thought he was the man. And yet we see people being attracted to that kind of faith. We see God, men of Israel being attracted to somebody who was willing to trust in God. And so, just as a side note, guys, this tells me that you don't have to be a jerk to be a man. And I think, you know, in, in church life in general, the pendulum kind of swings in this direction sometimes where we kind of say that to be a man of God, you've got to be a wuss. And then sometimes the pendulum swings over in this direction that says, you know, to be a manly man, we're going we're gonna to cuss, we're going to spit, we're going to be jerks to people all the time, and, and we're just going to throw a Bible verse out every now and then. And in reality, what we're striving for is Christ-likeness. And that is a dependency on God. So, the Bible never calls men to be a wuss. That's nowhere in the Bible. The word meek is not synonymous with the word weak. But the Bible also doesn't say, hey, it's okay because you're a guy to, to go out and be a jerk. We see David doing it right, and we're seeing the reaction of people is that they're just drawn to this man. And Jonathan sees him, and the Bible says he loved David like he loved his own soul. In fact, he gives David his... Uh, now, remember, the Israelites are fighting this battle with the Philistines with weed eaters and sling blades. All they've got is... Far they didn't really have weed eaters, so y'all can chuckle a little bit. Um, see, now all kinds of images in my mind are going... Nee! Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. So they've got farm implements to fight with, so 
Jonathan gives David his armor, he gives him his sword, he gives him fighting implements, and so there's a relationship here that's starting to develop where you have two men who are going hard together after God. And so David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And Saul sent him out over the men of war. So that day as they're coming back to uh, where Saul lives, and Saul told David, all right, you're not going home. The sheep are going to have to take care of themselves. You're all going to have to get somebody else to take care of them. You're coming home with me. And so as they're coming back, the women come out to, to sing a song. And this is where the trouble starts. And let me back up a little bit. And, and I, today's sermon, first of all, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on some of these texts, ever, in, in my, my time in the church. And so some of this is going to require some teaching, Tom. And I know some of you like that and some of you don't, but I'm going to have, have to do it so we can get through it. So in this particular case, there is a, an idea in, in Hebrew poetry that's a type of a couplet where you would say, and we see this in the Psalms all the time, God will destroy his enemy, yea, Yahweh will overcome those who come against him, kind of a thing. Where you have a couplet where you're essentially saying the same thing, but you're saying it two different ways for poetic purposes. It's, we have from this era where this would be said. So it's like the original song would have been, and Saul has had his thousands, and the son of Kish has had his ten thousand. But unknown to everybody God used David. And so it's like they're taking a popular song and just throwing somebody else's name in it. They're trying to, to, to recognize that David was involved, but it wasn't meant or isn't... Po- Within the literature, it's not meant as a slam to Saul. It would almost be like if I took a, a modern song and just grabbed you know, Mark's name and threw it in there. and was like, oh, Marky, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mark. It's just taking a popular song, the way that it would normally be done, and I'm going to have fun with this for a long time, I'm just saying, um, and replacing David's name with Saul. And so the women say, and Saul has his thousands and David has his ten thousands. It wasn't meant as a slight to Saul, and it's a poetic verse. Nobody killed a thousand or ten thousand. It's just a way of, of, of recognizing people's involvement in the conflict. But if you recall, Saul is all about Saul. Saul is already, we've already had him going out and building monuments to himself, which normally people don't do. I mean, if you're, if you're building a monument to yourself, that's probably a sign that you got a little narcissistic. Just saying, when, when Ann and I were watching some of the OJ, you know, last year, it was like every time you turn around, there was OJ Simpson, this, that, and the other thing. We were just talking about who has a statue of themselves in their yard. I mean, you're right there. If you want to see yourself, you just go, yep, there I am. Even if you think you're good looking, you can go, yep, I am still good looking. Who needs a bronze statue of themselves in their yard? Have you seen me out there? (laughs) That's right, I'm right out there. So Saul is doing that. Saul is already on this downward spiral. And so when he hears the lady saying, Saul has his thousands, David has his ten thousands, the text tells us that he was angry. Somebody's taking his limelight. The saying displeased him, and he said, they've ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they've only ascribed 1,000. And what more can he have now but the kingdom? Everybody loves him. Everybody wants to be like him. Now all he needs is the kingship. 
And so then the text says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. Now remember, when we were in 16, whenever David played the lyre, David's some unknown little punk from down in Bethlehem, when he's playing the lyre, the, the text says that it would calm Saul down, and he loved David. Now, after David's getting some praise, now whenever David plays the lyre, Saul goes into a rage. So that the text says that twice he tries to fling a spear to pin David to the wall. Literally attempted murder for David doing what he's commanded to do. This is not a good situation. So now the text sets us up to talk about David's marriage to Michael. Michael's a girl. Uh, That's just a girl's name. And so he first... Remember when Saul was saying, whoever defeats Goliath gets to marry my eldest daughter. So when um, they get back, you know, get back to town, everything settles down, Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Merib, and I will give to you for her for a wife. Now, let's back up a little bit and explain a little bit about the way marriage worked in the Near East. Okay, so the, the thinking was, if I raise a son... When he gets older, all of the time that I've invested him in him, the food I've invested in him, and if any of you have raised a son, no, that's a lot of food. So all of that energy that I put in there, I'm going to get payback on that because he's going to take care of me. The retirement plan is boys. But if I raise a daughter, all the time that I put into her, all the food that she eats, all the frustration, and I will say, and I love my daughters, but there's a lot more frustration with daughters than there are with guys. When, when girls get to be about 12 or 13, everything is high drama. Everything. Everybody hates me. <laughs> and so the thinking was, is when they get married, somebody's got to pay for all that time. And so there was a bride price where the groom's family would literally pay the father back for rearing a proper young lady. And it was a way to honor her as well as a way for that family to recoup the expenses that came out of rearing a daughter. The higher in stature the the lady's family was, the more the bride price was. So if you went down and married some, some young lady who she was from a family that had like Maybe a sheep, and you know they, they had some hoopty little car, and, and they, they, they were in a ramshackle place. You weren't going to have to pay a whole lot because it didn't cost much to raise her. I mean, you didn't feed her a whole lot, obviously. And so that was a cheaper bride price. So here David is being offered a, a, a marriage to a king's daughter. So it's going to be this huge bride price. And David tells Saul, I, I'm broke. I can't afford that. I come from a poor family. It's kind of like if, you're, if you've ever watched like game shows and you, you, maybe you don't realize that when they win something, they've got to pay the taxes on the value of whatever that is right there. So if you win a new car, then you've got to pay the taxes on it right then. In fact, do you remember a few years ago when Oprah, you know, she did the whole thing where, and you've got a car, you've got a car, everybody gets a car! Woo! Well, not everybody walked out with a car because there were quite a few people that said, I can't pay $10,000 off the top for the taxes. So why don't you keep the car? Because I'd rather not have a car that I wasn't interested in buying anyway and then having to pay $10,000. 
So David gets the right to marry Merib, but he can't afford it. And so Saul marries her off to somebody else. Now Saul is the whole time is sending David out. And, and the text says in two or three different places, and Saul is saying to himself, we'll let the Philistines take care of David. His mindset, everything he's thinking is not about what's best for his kingdom. He's not thinking about what's best for his family even. He's thinking about what's best for number one. He's setting himself up for failure. Well, he gets word that Michael is just absolutely gaga over David. That Michael is sitting around and she's writing down, um, you know, Michael Davidson over and over in her notebook. She's got a poster up on the wall with David. And she's, oh, he's so hot. And she's, she's, she loves David. And Saul finds out about this and he goes, yes. I'm going to use this to get this boy killed. So he calls David because he already knows that David, when, when Merib was offered to him, he said, I can't afford it. So he gets word to David through his servants. All right, here's the thing. Saul is not going to uh, ask for money. It says, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Interesting side note, when we get to the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, he has the same plan. So Saul's plan is, if I send him out to fight a hundred, try to kill a hundred Philistines, he's going to end up being killed. And then everybody's going to go, oh, poor David, but I'm going to get the glory. David will be a martyr, and we can build statues to him and talk about how awesome he was, but he's not going to be a thorn in my side. Michael's going to be upset for a while, but she'll get over it. She'll, she'll, you know, somebody else will come down the pike. I mean, after New Kids on the Block, we had uh, the Backstreet Boys. That's what I was trying to think of. There you go. So somebody else will come down the pike, and Michael will pine over somebody new. And so off he sends David. What he's failing to realize in this plan is that David not only is a man after God's own heart and has the favor of God on him, but also that all these men are being drawn to someone that has the guts to make a stand. And so David and his mighty men go out, and they didn't just kill 100 Philistines, they killed 200. So he delivered the the bride, bride price by two. So... Michael is just absolutely smitten because what a romantic gesture. He doubled the bride price for me. And the text tells us that Saul is now afraid. Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, his daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So... There's a couple of things I want us to walk through in the story. You might have noticed that when we were in 1 Samuel 16, that when we got to the, the section where it says, and God took the Holy Spirit away from Saul and, and sent an evil spirit to him, that I kind of just skipped over that. See, I was pretty cool the way I did that. Um, but I, the reason I did that is because I knew we were going to get to this concept today. Because what the text says is um, that God sent... Let me find it right here. Um, that God sent an evil spirit 
Now, what do we do with that? It says, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. A harmful spirit from God. And he raved within his house. Now, I, I, I've spent a lot of time this week studying this idea. And there are three ways. And I told Chad this morning, I hate to do that this way. But I really, I want you to have a good understanding of what the three ways that people look at this text. It, one is that it could be a demon. If you just take the plain reading of the text... You would think that Saul is allowing a demon to come attack, that God is allowing a demon to come attack Saul. In fact, if you're, you're reading a King James, it says an evil spirit in your, in your text. Now, the, the positive on that side, the, the thing that would make us think that is that's just, it seems to be the simplest, clearest reading in English. Now, if you have an ESV or an NIV, it doesn't say an evil spirit, it says a, a hurtful spirit. The, the Hebrew for this uh, little couplet is called a rah uh, ruach. And so it, it actually means a, a harmful or a, a bad spirit. And let's just break each one of those down. Rah uh, could mean uh, that something's bad. If, if there's something in the text that says something's gone rotten, like this fruit is, it was great and now it's rotten, that's the word that's used to describe the fruit. It's rotten. It's bad. Uh, it also could mean something that would make you sick. Uh, it, it has several different uses in Hebrew, but it really, the easiest way to put it is just, it's just harmful. It's something that's harmful. And ruach, we all, we probably heard that one before if you studied the Bible at all. That's just a spirit, your soul. The, the part in you in the Old Testament went, or in the uh, book of Exodus, when the Egyptians were coming against the children of Israel, it says that their soul melted within them. Same word is being used here. They looked and it was like, ah, oh, there's nothing we can do here. So it would... That, if you look closely at the Hebrew, maybe it's not an evil spirit. And some people even say that since that word rah is used so commonly to refer to your spirit, that it's actually talking about maybe uh, that God had allowed him to have just a, just a bad attitude. Have you ever met anybody that just everything that happened to them, it was just bad no matter what it was? It's just, there are some people, not in the church, I know that, but there are some people out there in the world that whenever anything happens, no matter what it is, I've joked within it, you could give some people a brick of gold and they'd be like, really, this thing is so heavy. Could you not just put the money in my account? Seriously, you're going to give me this heavy thing? That no matter what happens, it's bad. And so some people interpret this and read it to say that it, it was, uh, that that's what it is. Some people, the third way that it's kind of translated and, and dealt with is that maybe it's an angel of God that's sent to do something that God's commanded him to do. That's because sometimes angels do things that aren't necessarily nice. There was an angel of death, remember, that was sent to the Egyptians. That was an angel sent from God, and his job was to go around and kill people. We have throughout the Old Testament stories of angels doing things that we don't necessarily think of angels doing. We've talked about in here many times how angels are not little fat naked babies. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that they're going to you know, float around in there shooting you with an arrow. In fact, like we said, every time you see an angel seeing a human, the first thing he has to say is, don't be afraid, it's okay. Just calm down, calm down, because when people see them, they flip out. Well, I'm not going to flip out. Well, I might flip out if some little naked baby were to be hanging here floating around. But it's not, I'm, they're not going to have to say, don't be afraid. They're going to have to say, don't be startled because I don't see a lot of naked babies floating around. If I start seeing those, I'm probably older than 47. Um, so what do we do with this? 
It's a hard, hard text to translate. All right, remember in 1 Samuel 16, we've already seen where Samuel told Saul, this kingdom is going to come to an end. God had already predicted it. We know that David is going to become king. We know that from the line of David is going to come another king that's going to rule forever. So Saul being removed from the throne is what God wants to happen. So God is allowing what normally... God is allowing things to happen that would cause his plan to come to fruition. A few years ago I told you about how... Uh, whenever anybody dates my daughter, I have a standard speech. If somebody says, I want to go out with your, your, your daughter, um, this is what I do. And I, you can ask Molly and Emily. You can ask a couple of the boys over here. I'm not exaggerating. I call them into room, just the two of us. I typically, at that point, on the, on the, uh, the stand will have a 45 that's broken down, and I'm cleaning it while I'm talking. <laughs> I'm cleaning this weapon, and I look him in the face, and I said, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the boy's expecting a, tell me what you're going to do with your life, what are your intentions with my daughter's kind of speech. So that always throws them off. I love it. The look of confusion and what, what are we talking about here? What's going on? And so I'm like, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? I, 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 Pastor Tom, I don't know. I'm like, well, in the book of Exodus, you have both the text saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the text says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? The text says both. You know, and I get this completely dumb look. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of like when you're at Paris Island. There's no right answer. And so they, they, they think, they're thinking. And so I'm cleaning this weapon, and I'm like, well, I'm waiting. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well, here, let me, let me explain this. In the writer's mind throughout the Old Testament, there's always a primary cause and a secondary cause to everything. Everything that happens, the primary cause is always God. If you were to ask someone that was born in the 3rd century B.C. and lived in Israel, why did it rain? The primary reason why it rains is God. The secondary reason, if you read the book of Psalms, is the hydrological cycle. They understood that, that it rained, evaporated up, made clouds, and then God sent the rain back down. They understood that process. We've got a psalm that just describes it beautifully, and it's described, I think, in the book of Job. But the primary cause is always because God wanted it to rain. So your primary cause is always God. The secondary cause is whatever tool God uses to do it. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but the thing that he used to harden Pharaoh's heart was Pharaoh's own stubbornness. So they're both right. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God's the primary cause. Pharaoh's the secondary cause. Now, if I'm telling this young man this to, who's dating my daughter, I'm trying to finish up the weapon so that it's, it's reassembled by this point, and I'll look him in the face and say, if you hurt my daughter, jack around in the slide, the wrath of God will fall on your head, and I'm going to be the secondary cause. <laughs> now, y'all have a fun night. All right, now I'm just completely distracted. Okay, so, um, so boys, just keep that in mind. I'm watching you. Um, so, here's the thing. God 
in his infinite wisdom, wanted Saul off the throne. He had already condemned him. He had already established that David is going to step on the throne. So honestly, as I read through, and I've spent hours this week reading about why does God send that spirit? Does God? I think the answer to the question is, the primary calls, no matter how, what mechanism he's using, whether it's an angel or whether it's a demon, I'm not sure you can tell from that text, and I'm honestly not sure that it matters. I think the thing that we can take away from this is God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Because ultimately, through this demon, angel, bad attitude, whatever it is, God uses that in Saul's life to topple him in a way where God shows his justice. And then he raises up a king who is after his own heart from which the Jesus would come. And so that from even from our viewpoint, not even from the viewpoint of eternity, just looking back on it from our viewpoint reading the Bible, we see what an awesome God he is. And we learn so much from looking at the proud, arrogant Saul versus the humble David. And so God choose chose in that scenario to use the means that he did. Now, the question is always brought up, well, does God do that today? Is God going to send an evil spirit to me? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want us to see that he does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul is very clearly saying here that a messenger of Satan was sent to harass him. The word harass in the Greek is to literally buffet him, to beat him. To get him on the ground and kick him with everything that he's got. But in Paul's case, because he was in Christ, just like in Saul's life, this destroys him. In Saul, Paul's case, it causes him to be the man of God that he's supposed to be. See, in America, we've got it so easy, especially in our community. We, we have... And I, I know there are people in here that you work doubles at Goodyear. And that, I'm not trying to say that life is just woo, all roses and, and uh, unicorns for you. But I'm saying that you don't have to get up every morning and go haul water for uh, two or three hours before you can do anything. We've, we, we will all agree, I think, that we are very blessed in this country. And we do things and spend money for convenience. I mean, Ann and I, the first... Five or six years of our marriage, we didn't have a dishwasher. We were the dishwasher. And now, I can't even get my kids to get the dishes from the sink in the dishwasher. Right? It's all about convenience. 
I want it now. We've joked about how um, when, if you go on YouTube, you can find the, the, the Sunday I mentioned. I bet you could find a video of somebody who shot somebody over their chicken fingers not being there quick enough. And by 1 o'clock, I had like five uh, videos sent to me where shoot out at this McDonald's because somebody didn't get their chicken nuggets. We want it. We want it now. We want it our way now. It's all about convenience. And so we think that what's supposed to happen is, is that I walk down the aisle, I say, God, you can have my life, and then, bam, I'm just like Jesus. I want it now. And that's not reality. That's why sometimes people get so frustrated because, and, and you know what, on it, let's just be, let's be real here for a minute. Sometimes we perpetuate that in the church because we have people come up and give their testimony that says, you know what, I was a drunk, I was, I was shooting heroin, I was going to, to prostitution, I, all my life was horrible, and then I got saved, and bam, now I'm just like Jesus, and everything's perfect. And there are people in this audience here saying, that's not my experience. I still struggle with sin. Because, you know what, the process... To be transformed to the image of Christ is slow and painful and it hurts because there's part of us that God has to cut out that we don't want him to cut out. That's mine. And it's being in the word so that that washing and renewal of the word and it's being on our knees in prayer and it's pleading with God for stuff and it's God bringing stuff in our life that we don't want so that we pray, oh God, please take this away from me. And God was really trying to get you to pray more than he cared about the thing. God cares more about your Christ-likeness than he does your comfort. God cares more about you reaching the people around you and the people in this community than he does about you and I being happy. We're on mission. And so does sometimes God use the enemy to bring things in our life so that it purifies us? Yes. Does sometimes God just bring the fact that we live in a fallen world to purify us? Absolutely. Have you ever been in a super hurry and got in your car and gone click, 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 click? And you'll be like, you've got to be kidding me. Don't visit this car. No, i got to be somewhere in five minutes. Ah! Well, is that a demon? No, it's just a starter. <laughs> or the battery, the fact that you left the lights on in the interior or whatever. But can God use that? Absolutely he can. So whether it's a demon or an angel or whatever that God is pulling into your life, realize that everything that comes to me, everything that happens to me, first comes through God and is meant to conform me to his image, to make me more like Jesus, to make me able to love people around me better, to make me be able to serve people around me better. You see, I've had people go, hey, you know what? I got up this morning, my car wouldn't crank, and I think I, I'm a month behind in my mortgage, and this is bad thing is happening. Is What is God punishing me for? And for a Christian, that's not how we think. You see, all the wrath for your sin that you deserve, everything concerning God's punishment in your life, was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and Jesus drained God's wrath. That's why he could say, it's finished. 
And so for a Christian, when those bad things come into your life, they're not coming into your life like they were coming into Saul's life to destroy him, to punish him. They're coming into your life to work together to make you more like Christ. We all know the verse, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good to those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that you're going to get a new truck and a pony. It doesn't mean that, every, that your whole life that you're going to go in and be like, Woo, I don't know what I'm going to eat today. And you open the fridge and there's a box of Reese's Cups. That's not what that means. What that means is that everything that comes into your life, every tragedy that happens to you, every time something that's seemingly meaningless, that that's not wasted. That the pain that you experience in life, the things that happen to you, that God uses those to make you more like him. And Paul says, for I'm convinced that this present slight affliction. Now when Paul said that, he's not just talking about, hey, I had a hangnail or the alarm went off too early. I mean, if you think about what Paul had gone through, just if you, see, when I go off, off um, thing and then I got to look the verses up. Oh, here we go. For we have this Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. And then he describes what he's going through. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying the body in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So Paul is saying, death is literally at my doorstep because I'm serving him, but that's okay because Jesus is enough. We don't have that attitude. And God will bring things into your life to help you have that attitude. And so in Saul's life, we see that as a punishment, as a curse. When he grabbed Samuel's robes and they ripped off in his hand and Samuel said, just like these robes are rent, this kingdom will be rent out of your hand. And he stormed off. The wrath of God rested on Saul. But if you're in Christ, the wrath of God was, re- was placed on his son. And so this morning, as we come to a time... If you're not in Christ, then call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You can't carry your own wrath. Just like Saul, if you go forward, it will destroy you. If you're in here and you're a Christian, and you aren't serving your king faithfully, you're not allowing the things that come into your life to change you, to move you, to make you the person of God that you need to be, then If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're in here and you're looking for a church family, we would love to have you join us. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you, thank you, thank you that in this story, we see that your sovereignty moves in little things and big things that you are never in heaven out of control. Father God, we praise you for that. What a mighty, mighty God we serve. Lord, we humbly bow at your feet. 
We pray that you would give us the strength to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.